who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. You're listening to The Pocket and the Pendant by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. Produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Michael and Evo's Dragon Page and Podiobooks.com. The full book is available in patio book format at patiobooks.com. The full print version is available at amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com, lulu.com, or from the book's website and blog at www.pocketandpendant.com. Nine, the Isle of the Dreamtime. Max, Casey, Ian, and Sasha bounced and slapped against one another as they fell. Max tasted copper fear in his mouth as he flailed helplessly in the dark. He could hear Ian, Casey, and Sasha screaming. They were all vainly groping in the blackness to find something, anything to latch onto to halt their rapid descent. But the tunnel seemed sheer as silk and slippery as black ice and Max thought he could feel the walls moving whenever he bumped into them, like the tunnel was contracting and expanding, swallowing them like a great throat. Unrelenting, the tunnel continued to suck them down deeper and deeper into a vortex. And then suddenly, without warning, the children were ejected into a heap onto a stone floor. The four of them groaned as they untangled themselves. Everyone all right? Max asked. Yep, Ian croaked. Sasha nodded and groaned. You know, I wasn't planning on playing Splitster today. I'm here too, Casey added quickly, verbally overriding the last part of Sasha's sentence. Sasha glared at Casey in obvious annoyance. Wind whistled in their faces. Wherever they were, it was night. As their eyes adjusted, the children saw that they were on a large stone open-air platform, a kind of roof deck, under a dark sky of myriad bright warm stars, shimmering like powdered jewels against the velvety deeps above. Max looked behind them, but there was nothing but a solid stone wall in the soft argent starlight. There was no sign of the tunnel which had brought them here. The stone of the roof deck was punctuated by sumptuous, thick, silky Persian rugs. They were rich with such detail and intricate design that, by some trick of the eye, they seemed actually to pop into three dimensions when you looked directly at them. The platform itself was walled in on all sides by stonework. But here and there, Max saw openings allowing one to peer over the side and down below. The breezy air tingled with the promise of tropical thunderstorms, yet there was only a small whirl or knot of cloud here and there, obscuring the throbbing diamond lights above. Suddenly, they heard a thunderous crash like the gnashing of stone somewhere nearby. Startled, Max raced to one of the gaps in the wall and peered over. He gasped as he saw that they were atop a great spire, a massive obsidian tower of stone built atop a rough exposed rock face jutting up from the sea like a small island. In every direction, there was only ocean, although Max thought he could make out a brief coastline with winking firelights off in the distance. The crash had been the waves of the boiling, windy sea slamming against the rock base far below. And suddenly, Max noticed a man seated in a comfortable chair at the other end of the room. He was facing away, 
so they could only see one arm in the back of his head. He was by a roaring fire, crackling and snapping, in an outdoor stone fireplace built into the far wall. He was watching television. Max pointed silently, and the others nodded. They had noticed him also. The foursome gingerly started crossing the floor towards him. Without really thinking about what they were doing, they all started tiptoeing, sneaking up on him. Surely this was Mr. E, Enki. And just as surely, he was perfectly aware of their presence. Wasn't he? As the children got closer, they could see that he was motionless, watching a Saturday morning cartoon in the old-style television in front of him. Something classic, featuring a cat and a mouse and a baby. They could hear the teeny soundtrack, crazy, loopy sound effects, skittish orchestral music plinking away. The man sat so perfectly still that at first Ian wondered whether he might be asleep or even dead. As a result, the four of them were quite startled when he suddenly raised his arm and aimed a remote at the television. Click! A news program appeared with a weatherman talking about the eclipse. Click! A show about ancient Egypt and the pyramids. Click! A documentary about the UFOs. Click! Now the television showed Max, Casey, Ian, and Sasha tiptoeing towards the back of the chair as though they were on a security camera. The children all sucked air in through their teeth. He knew they were here. Well, of course he did, Max snapped at himself. The television suddenly snapped off to a tiny white dot lingering in the center of the screen. Hello, Max, Casey, Ian, and Sasha, the man said without moving. His voice was nice, like velvet syrup, Casey thought. I've been watching TV. Aliens love TV. Did you know that? Max would have laughed if not for the lump in his throat. I'm glad you're here. And I am indeed the person known as Mr. E that you've been looking for. The words hit Max like a physical force. This was him. Max was about to find out everything. The man stood and turned to face the four children. He was tall and had a sleek snow-white mane of hair and a long beard that poured vigorously from his head like flowing cream, both fluttering tangled in the tropical breeze. Although he was clearly very old, his face was curiously free of wrinkles and blemishes, and his skin retained a healthy, ruddy, glowing tan color. There was a puissance about him, as though an ancient power were cleverly hidden beneath the appearance of mortal flesh. His eyes twinkled with mischief, and yet his gaze was like lightning, angel eyes that could incinerate with a glance. Although he was physically thin and sinewy, muscular like a panther, he was also something like the ghost of Christmas past or Santa Claus. He had that same numinous quality. Yet, there was also something vaguely unsettling about him. Was his head slightly too thin? Or was it the impossibly precise way he moved his hand, just there? The children couldn't stop staring at him, trying to figure out what it was they were really seeing. He was marvelous and terrible at once. Max found that he liked them instantly. The man spoke. I'm sorry that tunnel frightened you, but I've learned to exercise discretion over the years. The one whom you named Johnny Siren tried to follow you here. He was prevented. Is he dead? Casey asked nervously. Oh no, the man replied carefully. He was simply returned to the place from whence he came. His eyes twinkled. But judging from the torrent of foul language, I don't think he was very happy about it. His eyes danced over the children, and he laughed heartily. You four, on the other hand, pass the test. Oh, you mean that riddle? It wasn't that hard, Ian beamed with what he thought was secret pride. It wasn't an intelligence test. It was a humor test. What? It was designed to see if you could be funny. You know, get the joke. Only people who are funny are allowed here, and that's serious business. Where is here? Ian asked. That question has no real meaning, but if I were to answer it best as I can, I would say, here, here is everywhere and every when. Here, time has no real meaning, and all places are the same place. It's a different kind of everywhere, and no place in particular. Max, Casey, and Sasha stared at him in confusion, while Ian tried to work it out in his head. Which, of course, means nothing to no one, the man added. But first things first, introductions. My name is Anki, 
Well, one of my names, anyway. I've had so many. Anki, A, Thoth, and Prometheus are some. Hermes Trismegistus and even the more recent Mr. E are others. I'm pleased to meet you, Ankle, Casey said. Anki, Anki repeated. Hanky, Casey replied, trying to get it right. <laughs> Close enough, Anki smiled. But before we continue, I feel I should be fully honest about something. I am not really here, strictly speaking. I'm a kind of recording, a simulated version of me, like a hologram. I was created by the real Anki, and I act and talk and think like the real Anki would, but I'm not actually real in the same sense that you are. I was put here on Earth by the real Anki to watch over humankind, and I've done so faithfully for the last 6,000 years, with varying levels of success, I should confess. You should also know that I've been following your progress, and I know all about Jadith, so there's no need to fill me in there. In fact, I've been waiting for you to arrive, so I can help you. But how? Max asked. Anki laughed softly. I have many, many eyes which see far beyond my aisle, rest assured. And even the pocket cannot blind them. Casey was looking intently at everything. At the rugs again, the craggy stone walls, even the stars. What is... she began, and then trailed off as if she were unsure how to even ask the question in her mind. How... Yes, Casey? Anki asked. What is with this place? I don't know how to explain it. Everything seems like a special effect. Max blinked. Casey was right. The entire aisle seemed somehow more vivid than ordinary reality, more sweeping and cinematic. Colors were lusher, richer, more potent. Detail was sharper, more precise, like their eyesight had been improved tenfold. Sounds were crisper, cleaner, packed with more texture. Even the smell of the air seemed tangy with rich, eldritch power. In short, everything was more real than real. The kids felt almost transparent, insubstantial, even wispy next to the most mundane object here. Enki smiled. That's because this isle is an oasis enfolded in the heart of the dream time itself. You are nearer the true core of reality, and you sense it. But there is a lot more going on around you right now than you are actually able to perceive, because you are merely looking with your fallible, foolable, mortal eyes of flesh. You're not seeing. For example, this sea isn't really a sea. It's an interdimensional gulf, a rift between planes of existence. But you perceive it as a sea because that is what you comprehend after your fashion of being. Don't be too hard on yourselves for that, though. There certainly is no shame in it. Enki asked suddenly, by the way, would you all like some ice cream? And I promise, this food is safe. It isn't magic food. Yes, please, Casey chirped. They all nodded vigorously. They were all quite hungry. Inky walked a few feet to a refrigerator, incongruously sitting there by the stone wall. Max could have sworn it hadn't been there a second ago, but now, without any appearance or interruption you would have noticed, it simply was there. Enki pulled out a couple of tubs of ice cream, muttering each of their flavors. Let me see. Mint chocolate chip, chocolate, vanilla, and... Lemon strawberry? Casey asked hopefully. Enki was amused. Hmm, I don't know about that, but let me just see. He strained and grunted and reached deep into the very back of the freezer and pulled out another tub and made a big show of wiping the encrusted ice from it as though it had been there for a very long time. Well, what do you know? It turns out we do have some lemon strawberry after all, Enki said holding it up like a prize. Casey beamed and clapped her hands. Max suspected that Enki could pull almost anything out of that freezer at will, and he was just having a bit of fun making a big act out of pretending to search for it. And anyway, Max had a sneaking suspicion there was no real flavor called lemon strawberry. Enki opened the tubs of ice cream and was now digging deeply into the lemon strawberry with a scoop, dropping generous round blobs of ice cream into a bowl for Casey. Max reached out for one of the other tubs and looked at the packaging suspiciously. The style was very 1920s, classic, vintage American. It said, Uncle Enki's famous homestyle ice cream. Billions and billions of humans can't be wrong. It was a zany comic of an old man holding up an oversized spoon and grinning widely, clearly meant to be Enki. The sound of the sea crashing against the rocks below suddenly was deafening, and then it died down again. Enki had already handed Casey her ice cream and was working his way around the table with bowlfuls for the others. But who is the real Enki? Casey asked between bites. 
Ow! Brain freeze, she said suddenly, putting one hand to her forehead. So don't eat so fast, Anki chided. The real Anki is one of several beings who came to your world from a planet called Nibiru some 500,000 years ago. Your recorded history remembers us dimly and garbled now as the gods in your various mythologies. You mean like like Zeus and Apollo, like that? Max asked. Anki nodded, smiling. Well, personally, I prefer our Egyptian names, like Ra, Osiris, and Thoth. But yes, I mean exactly like that. So, uh, what is this planet you're from? This Newberry, or what did you call it? Ian asked. Nibiru. It may surprise you to learn that Nibiru is actually a planet in your own solar system, but it is as yet undetected by your scientists. Anki's eyes twinkled. Ian just stared at Anki for a moment as though he had just been told the world was flat. You're nutters! That's impossible! Ian finally stuttered. We've discovered all the planets. How could we have missed a planet in our own solar system? Well, it's quite easy to miss, actually. Anki said, looking up wistfully at the dark, dizzyingly clear sky, packed with an impossible number of stars like so many burning jewels. This particular planet has an orbit like a comet. It comes into the inner solar system only once every 3,600 years. Ancient Sumerian and Egyptian tablets, and even ancient Chinese astrological charts, are replete with accounts of the appearance of this planet in your skies in the past. Max had the sudden sensation of tumbling backwards, but then realized his eyes were fooling him. Instead, to his astonishment, the entire sky was moving, like a planetarium rotating the view. And set against this backdrop of uniform, smooth, heavenly motion, another star, a rogue, seemed to defy them all. This bright rebel star moved counter to the direction of the others. The Sumerians called it the Planet of Crossing because it crossed unnaturally against the orbits of the other planets in the solar system. However, during modern times, Nibiru's orbit has taken it out well beyond Pluto, so far, in fact, that it cannot be seen by even the most powerful modern telescopes. Thus, because no one has seen it, nobody today believes Nibiru really exists. Ergo, QED, magna cum laude. The stars were stationary again. Ian eyed Anki as though he were trying to put one over on him. But even if this planet does exist, nobody could live on it, Ian replied. It's out further than Pluto, which is an ice ball. It'd be too cold. It would be impossible. Impossible? Impossible? So is the pocket. So are magic books, Ian countered, laughing. Don't be too sure about what is possible and what is not. Not everything you see is real. And not everything that is real can be seen. So, as I was saying... Anki is my Sumerian name, but to the Egyptians I was known as the god Thoth. To the Greeks, I was Prometheus. In South America, I was called Quetzalcoatl. It was I who taught the Aztecs and the Toltecs the arts of civilization, astronomy, mathematics, and architecture. I broke them of cannibalism, of bloody human sacrifice, which they practiced on a staggering scale before my arrival. Go look it up. You'll find plenty of mentions of me. Archaeologists have discovered writings in temple ruins of the strange white god who came from across the sea and taught the Aztecs everything they knew. In fact, when the Spanish conquistadors arrived in Central America, the Aztecs mistook them for gods because they had white skin, in short, because they looked like me. It was thus a simple matter for the Spanish to destroy them. I discovered too late what happened. I was far away on an errand. Imagine my horror when I realized that it was because of me that the Aztecs had let down their guard. Ah, I should have been there. I should... Ah, I lose myself in past errors. Henke was deep in his own thoughts for a moment, and then he resurfaced. And I have many, many other names as well. My Egyptian name, Thoth, means he who creates with sound. Everything starts with words. Nothing is more powerful. Even the tapestry of the very universe itself is woven with words, not matter. There was the world of words first, and then there was the world of objects hung upon that scaffolding. That is why words can manipulate the universe, why words can alter it. Why do you think sorcerers call it a spell when they are performing magic? Because they are respelling, rearranging the words that make up the universe. Words, you mean words like in a book? Casey ventured. Yes, Casey, exactly like that. 
mind exists in a deeper order of reality, one beyond both space and time, an order from which both space and time are simply an emanation, and words are the key to shaping thoughts. It is this, in fact, which makes both the pocket and the pendant possible. But, Ian was already protesting, wait a minute, thought is inside the brain. Consciousness arises from the trillions of neurons that make up your brain. You get enough nodes in a neural network, enough complexity, and consciousness emerges, right? Anki laughed out loud as if Ian had just said something preposterous. <laughs> so it would seem. Yet the world seems flat and is not. Neither do you actually think with your brain. It is an interface point would be the best way to describe it in terms you would understand. Ian sat quietly and thought about this with obvious suspicion while Anki continued. This idea is very strange to you, Ian, I know. You understand things which are rational and logical. So let me give you an example that proves what I am saying using those very things that you understand. You've heard of quantum mechanics, yes? Ian nodded. It's kind of physics, yeah. They smash up atoms in these big tubes and weird things happen. But it's very, very serious physics, right? Enki pressed. Lots of complex math. Very hard-boiled material science. Nothing hokey, right? Ian nodded. Yeah, that's right. Alright, consider this then. Through quantum mechanics, humans have finally discovered the rather odd fact that mathematically, empirically, experimentally, the physical universe needs mind to exist. Particles aren't even real. They don't actually manifest until observed. Quantum mechanics says that a particle might be a particle, or it might be a wave, and it only becomes one or the other when someone looks at it. Curious, isn't that? Look it up if you doubt me. And particles themselves have no real exact location. You think an actual thing exists in a certain place? And try this one on. If two particles become quantumly entangled, they can be at opposite ends of the universe, and a change in state in one will be instantaneously reflected and copied by the other, faster than the speed of light, which can only mean one thing, that two particles are merely aspects of one particle. It's really, somehow, the same particle bilocating across the universe. Even the most straight-laced physicist admits these things are real and is baffled by them. But they wouldn't baffle a Buddhist monk, or a Mexican sorcerer, or indeed many in the ancient world. That is because they already know the truth. When you get right down to it, matter's not really real. It's an illusion. There's no world out there. There's only a description of it in our heads that we all agree upon. It's a dream. We're all sharing a dream, the dream of the universe. We don't exist inside the universe. Rather, it exists inside of us. You like to talk a lot, don't you? Casey said. Enki laughed uproariously at this, suddenly aware of how caught up by his own words he had been. Sorry, <laughs> I can get carried away, I know. But there is a lot you need to understand, if you're to have any hope at all of stopping Jadith. I don't get it, Casey complained. Enki smiled and turned to her and said gently, Well, here it is again, another way, then. The world is a dream, and we are all the dreamers. Casey smiled at him gratefully. Well, that makes sense, and it's nice. Enki became gently grim and then said, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. It's not nice. This is not some airy-fairy platitude. The dream can be very dangerous. There are dark beings who understand this principle all too clearly and seek to alter the flow of the dream for their own purposes. Ah, there was a time when the dream quality of the universe was more accessible to everyday experience. As easy as breathing, as obvious as the sky. We call this time the dream time. Much of Nuberian technology is in fact based on it in one way or another, although I understand this far, far better than most of my people. The dream time itself is, or was, a time before time, an earlier epoch in the universe, if you can even call it that, because even the very nature of time itself was different. We called it this because the fabric of reality was then more plastic, more dreamlike, if you will. The boundary between thought and matter was thinner. Words, especially spoken words, had power. So much so that telling a lie was an actual impossibility, as there was no division between intent and physical reality. Modern science says that the universe has always been constant, and its laws inflexible and rigid. 
but this simply is not so. But here Enki stopped, watching Ian's reaction. You look troubled, Ian. It just, it doesn't sound real, Ian replied politely but honestly. I mean, how do real things work, you know, like cars and phones and computers? If they're not really real, I mean, they have to be real, right? You're thinking rationally, and that will not help you comprehend this. Rationality is just a style of thinking, a fad, based on observation of reality. And reality is fundamentally an illusion. Therefore, rationality is an illusion. So stop thinking rationally and just listen, Enki replied forcefully. You must understand that deep down, everything is one. All time, all space, all consciousness are merely aspects of the one. In fact, two was the very first lie. You know, that's, that's pretty hard to swallow, Max replied, still puzzling it out. Enki laughed. Yes, I know, but there are a great many things I wish for you to know. I'm trying to teach you so that you can understand what the pocket really is, and what the pendant really is. For they both have their roots in the dream time, in the essential oneness of all things. But nowadays, the essence of the dream time is buried, cloaked under a thick veil of illusion. Yet I assure you, it is still there. If nothing else, the pocket is evidence of that. And in times of great passion or unshakable belief, even regular people will instinctively shuck off their conditioned reality and tap down through the thick layers of the veil into the very dream time itself. That is why people experience synchronicity, why mothers lift cars off children with unexplainable superhuman strength, why clocks stop at the exact moment of the death of their owners. ESP, voodoo, remote viewing, telekinesis, pick any paranormal phenomenon, you name it. Enki sighed and gathered himself up. Well, now that you know about the dream time, and about words, you can probably guess why the Egyptians always depicted me carrying a tablet and pen. Because I was known to them and to my own people as he who solves secrets, a worker of the magic of words, words that unlock and channel the fundamental power of the dream time. You're like a computer programmer, Ian blurted out. I mean, that's like writing software, isn't it? Only software that, like, works in the real world. Yes, you could say that, Inky admitted. Writing software is the art of creating a tapestry of magic words, after all. It really is the same thing. Then Ian's eyes lit up and he blurted, Bloody hell, you created the books of Jonathan Roseblood Serranus, didn't you? I mean, they're filled with words that can rearrange the universe. They're basically magic, Ian said, his eyes growing wide. Enki nodded again. Yes, those books were in fact my creation. I created the books so that in time, humans could find them, learn from them, and realize their true potential. But some of those books were stolen, long, long ago, when I was less careful than I am now. And Jonathan Roseblood Serranus ever a fan of Nuberian artifacts, eventually acquired several of them as they wound their way down through the centuries. And as you have realized, books can be very, very dangerous. Mr. E, Enki, uh, I, I don't mean to be rude, but we have a lot of questions, Max interrupted impatiently, and not much time. Enki suddenly stopped and slowed down. Yes, I know, Max. I am sorry. Go ahead, ask your questions. Max took a deep breath and then said, We need to know what's happening and why. What is the pocket and who is that jadeth woman? Enki sighed and smiled and then said, Well then, enough about the dream time for the moment. Here are the headlines, as your cable television news might say, to bring you up to speed. Anu, my father, the king of Nibiru, is dead. Anu had two children, Enlil and myself. Enlil was the firstborn, but he has long been dead. Jadith is Enlil's daughter. She is therefore in line for the throne. But Jadith's claim is disputed. Since Enlil is dead, that leaves me, the real me anyway, Anki, as the rightful heir. Yet the real Anki has not come forward to claim the throne. He may be dead, or he may simply be in hiding and not wish to come forward. But Nuberians are very particular about this sort of thing. Observance of ritual and hierarchy are everything in our culture, almost to the point of obsession. The people of Nibiru will want to be very sure they do not place the wrong person on the throne. They would find that profoundly disturbing. 
Most Nuberians don't care for me personally. Some even name me the Great Betrayer. However, they would much rather see me on the throne than see their precious ritual violated. So the people of Nibiru have elected to wait. They want to see what happens. Maybe Enki doesn't know Anu is dead, some think. Maybe once he hears, he'll show himself. In the meantime, Jadith has grown tired of waiting. She's hatched a plan to force Nibiru to place her on the throne. And so now, the Earth is in grave peril. Jadith has come here seeking an ancient Nuberian artifact known as the Pendant. The Pendant is an umphalo so powerful that it renders free will utterly impotent. It's essentially a void, a hole, in the Dreamtime itself. The Pendant can command the will of billions. Jadith wants it to enslave humanity. And with this army of six billion slaves, she intends to attack Nibiru and take the throne by force. What is an Omphalos? Max asked. Johnny Siren used that word to describe that singular eye thing he tried to use on me. Ah, yes. Enki laughed softly. Forgive me. In places, the dream of the universe is thicker than in others. These places manifest as dense matter, or gems. Amethysts, diamonds, rubies, lapis lazuli, emeralds. These jewels retain a deep and rich complexity of vibrations from the time from which they were formed. Kind of a fossil, but a thought fossil, if you will. And some of these gemstones contain echoes of the very dream time itself. These special rare gems that do are called umphalos, or stones of splendor. Physical proximity to an umphalos can cause you to resonate with the thought patterns trapped in its matrix of crystal, and for your consciousness to become influenced by it. Nuberians regularly use umphalos to awaken our awareness, and thus gain the ability to bend reality as we see fit. But they are not all-powerful. There are limits to how far we can bend the dream using an umphalos, for, being composed of physical matter, they too are ultimately part of the illusion themselves. The pendant is one kind of umphalos. I will speak more of it later. That crystal ball, the Whispering Stone, you saw Johnny Siren contact Jadith with in the Starland Museum of Antiquities. That was another kind of umphalos. It retains the truth that all places are one place, and distance is therefore an illusion. This lets us make interplanetary long-distance telephone calls, if you will. There is a line from the Atrahasis, an ancient Sumerian poem describing a whispering stone, a contraption that launches words, a stone that whispers. Men its messages will not know, Earth's multitudes will not comprehend. The singular eye is another sort of umphalos, one that forms a singularity in thought, one that speaks to the essential oneness of all consciousness. And sky chambers use umphalos. You've no doubt noticed the gemstones and jewels set into the hulls of the craft. They provide a propulsion which frees the craft of the illusion of gravity. They also render the hull impervious to penetration from normal material objects or pressures. Which brings us finally to the pocket. The pocket is a phenomenon created by a very special Omphalos called the Chrononomicon. It is very ancient and very powerful. The Chrononomicon whispers that time is an illusion. This is why Jadith brought it with her to Earth. To you, it appears that time has stopped, and hence you move through a strange nether time in which you have new abilities and perceptions. But what has really happened is that your awareness was enhanced by the Chrononomicon. You have been speeded up, or rather temporarily freed from your usual perceptual prison, one in which you believe that events happen in sequence, one following the other. The Chrononomicon was formed in the time before time, when there was no time, or rather no illusion of time. It therefore retains the echo of timelessness from the very early dream time. It says to you, Time is ultimately an illusion. What you perceive of as moments separating events into sequences is not really real. When you know this in the depths of your awareness, you are no longer subject to the illusion of time and do not have to obey its strictures. Then you can walk between the raindrops. You can pluck arrows from the wind. In other words, you suddenly find yourself in what you have come to call the pocket. Like what we've been doing, Casey exclaimed. 
Yes, you have been doing it. But we never realized that time is an illusion or anything like that. We didn't even know what the bleeding hell was going on, Ian replied, perplexed. Ah, but you did realize it without realizing it, Hanky replied with a twinkle in his eye. Well, that is to say, your consciousness was altered without your even being aware of it. How is that even possible? Sasha asked. Think of it like a radio station broadcasting thought waves. That's why time seemed to slow down the closer you got to New York. Jadith is there with her Umphalos. The closer you got to the Chrononomicon, the greater its influence was upon you. But something else happened that she did not anticipate. Certain human children all over the world also responded to the Umphalos. Umphalos are only supposed to work on Nuberians. You mean us, Sasha said excitedly. Hanky smiled. Yes, hundreds of children, perhaps thousands. All with a special talent, a receptivity to the Umphalos. That had never happened before. It was completely unexpected. It was perhaps because humans nowadays have a lot of Nuberian blood in their veins. In England, this is what folk would call fairy blood, much more so than in the past. And why only children? Perhaps because children can be receptive to the impossible in a way adults cannot. This is a question of awareness, after all. And adults are far more set in their ways than children. In any event, without Jadith's knowledge, children the world over suddenly felt the very dream time itself in their bones. These children were then able to do things that were hitherto impossible. Like whooshing, Max exclaimed. And like what I do with mirrors, the way I can go into them and bring other people with me, Casey asked. Yes, Casey, Enki replied. The Umphalos has inadvertently awakened your awareness of the dream time on many levels. This has made reality a little more soupy for you, allowed you to bend the dream. You must have spent a lot of time with mirrors before the pocket, looking into them, pondering them. That's why mirrors in particular work for you now, why they help you focus. Casey blushed and looked away because she knew Enki was telling the truth. But you, Max, you are a different story, Enki continued. The reason why you responded to the Chrononomicon is because you are a full-blooded Nuberian, like me. Max sat for a moment and then nodded. Yeah, I know. Or at least I began to suspect when we found that house in Texas. I guess I'm a lot less, you know, freaked out than I thought I would be. And that is freaking me out a little bit. Anki laughed knowingly. I'm not surprised. But then, why, why can't I remember anything? Who did this to me? Who erased my memory? You did this to you, Anki replied heavily. In fact, you and I have been here before, having this exact same conversations many, many times before, Max. And you are the one who keeps asking for your memory to be hidden. Me? Yes. But why? Anki sighed with a weariness of the soul. Only you know. You've never told me. So I can only tell you what happens every time you come here, and it's always the same. You show up. You demand that I restore your memory, that I undo your cryptonesia. And so I do. But then, once you remember your secret, you become despondent. You wish you had never demanded to know. You made a mistake in coming here, you say. You ask me to help you forget again, to restore your cryptonesia, and find a new way to disappear into the world again, into a new life. So, once again, I do what you ask. I cause you to forget your secret, forget about me, about everything. I find a new life for you to lead, and I place you there. But always, without fail, eventually, you begin to suspect something. At first, you don't know what. It's just a vague, gnawing feeling. But it keeps at you, and you keep digging and questioning. Eventually, you find your way back here, and it all starts all over again. This has been going on for quite some time now. Your lifespan is nearly a million years. This is why the Egyptians called Nibiru the planet of millions of years. As a result, even your childhood stretches over a very long period. You are already thousands of years old, Max. This is why you keep running into people who seem to know you from long ago. Like Petunia, Siren. It's because they do know you. In fact, you've had several lengthy, let's call them conflicts, with Siren over the past few hundred years. You just don't remember. And in many cases, neither does he. 
but for altogether different reasons. So that farmhouse in Texas, Max whispered. Yes, that was but one of your former lives. As the adopted child of Hess and Rumi Bloom, you stayed there for a long time, much longer than usual. I think you must have been happy. But nonetheless, once again, you eventually found your way to me through a book in New York. So I wiped your memory again, and I instructed you in how to seal the farmhouse against your inadvertently discovering it again. You were the one who placed that guardian Namshub in place. What's a Namshub? Casey asked. That's a Sumerian word. It means a binding of energy, spoken words containing physical force, an articulation of the dream time. But then, why did the farm look deserted, like everyone had dropped what they were doing in 1963? Siren. He raided the farmhouse, looking for you after you left. He took Hess and Romy. Why? Because you never seemed to age. He suspected you were Nibirian. He thought if he could catch you, study you, he might figure out a way to keep from aging himself. Siren was furious when he couldn't find you. He went crazy. Hess and Romy were old. They didn't know anything, and they couldn't take the strain of Siren's questioning. Then Anki added quietly, You never forgave yourself. Casey seemed to wince. Max felt a chasm open up around him. A grief choked him suddenly that he couldn't easily explain. So, I erased your memory yet another time. Afterward, I sent you to Starland. To the Starland home for boys. But, but I feel, I look, totally human. I mean, you'd never know, Max said, his hands touching his chest as if to verify he still existed. Of course, humans and Nuberians are closely related genetically, but there are differences. This is why your doctors thought you had some kind of genetic disease. They didn't understand that you were perfectly normal for a Nuberian. I didn't, you know, like, kill somebody or something, did I? Max asked. Anki burst out laughing. <laughs> no. At least I don't think so. Then what is it, the secret I keep hiding from myself? Anki looked pained. I don't know. You've never told me. But here we are, once again. And knowing what I've told you, you ask me again to restore your memory. That never seems to deter you either. You always ask to know again. Anki stared at the fire for a long moment and then said, But this time, things are different. This time, Jadith is here and the pocket grips the world. And Siren has already succeeded at capturing you once. Your amnesia actually protected you from him. It kept Siren from seeing into your mind, from learning your secret. And we're all lucky that Jadith did not know of your capture and seek to open your mind herself. Then things may have been much worse. No, there is too much risk still. And if I were to restore your mind, you yourself would rail against me for having done so. Jadith and Siren must not discover your secret. It must be preserved at all costs. That much, at least I know. Max's heart fell. After all this, he would not learn the truth after all. It must have shown on his face because Enki said, I know you're disappointed, but I do believe that when the time is right, you will thank me. Enki, Max started hesitantly and then said, Do you know who my parents are? Anki's eyes became misted, conflicted. He paused and then said, No, Max, I don't. I'm sorry. They were all silent for a few long moments. But she can't find it, can she? Sasha suddenly blurted, and then after realizing she had voiced the end of a thought rather than the beginning, Sorry, I, I mean the pendant. And Jadith. She's been looking for it for five years, and still she can't find it, right? Anki nodded. No, she can't. It was perfectly hidden. Johnny Siren promised it to her. He told her he knew how to find it. That's why Jadith came to Earth in the first place. That's why she created the pocket. Siren gambled. True, he had some clues as to where it was. But he figured that with the pocket, and with time stopped, and thus no humans to interfere with the search, they would be able to locate it quickly. But in that, Siren was mistaken. It is here on Earth. It was hidden here in antiquity. All Nuberians know this, but none know where it is. Then he added cryptically, In fact, it is impossible for anyone to find it until it is time for it to be found. And I will also tell you that no one can find it.
except for you, Max. Me? Max yelped, surprised. Yes, Hanky confirmed. Why me? You will know in time, Hanky replied, smiling and seeming to laugh to himself. So, you know where it is? Max asked. Hanky nodded. Of course I do. I was the one who hit it. In fact, I was the one who made it. That brought an audible gasp from the foursome. What a terrible thing to make. Why in the world would you make such a thing? Casey screeched at him. I had no choice. If I hadn't, Enla would have wiped out humanity forever. After the rebellion at the tower, I was forced to swear an oath. But nonetheless, I am very sorry. Enki seemed genuinely ashamed. It was quite a sight to see a small little girl jabbing her finger and giving an immortal being such a talking to. Well, you should be, Casey yelled at him. She had put down her ice cream bowl now and wasn't eating. She wasn't sure if she trusted Enki anymore. I will explain everything, and hopefully you will forgive me, Casey. Well, we'll see, she answered, glaring. It wasn't my first choice, believe me. But I think even you will agree, when you know everything, that in spite of that I managed to keep things on track. And that was no easy feat, believe me. But for the time being, I can see that you are angry with me. And I can hardly bear to have you frown at me like that, Casey. What can I do to make you feel better? Casey sulked for a moment and then said quietly, Tell us more about Johnny Siren. Anki nodded knowingly. Very well, he agreed. Siren? That is Jonathan Roseblood Serranus. Is somewhere near 400 years old. He desires life eternal above all else. He struck a bargain with Jadith. If he delivers the pendant to her, she will grant him immortality. Max nodded. He had been there when this particular deal was struck, in the Museum of Antiquities in Starland. Siren had spoken with her through an Omphalos, a whispering stone. But she can't actually give that to him, can she? Casey asked. Of course she can, Enki replied, sounding slightly annoyed. You've heard of the Greek myth of Ambrosia the food of the gods which gives eternal life to mortals. It's true, of course, like most of your so-called myths. It's a plant that grows only in Nibiru, the plant of life. But wait a minute, Ian said. If Siren is hundreds of years old, I mean, we all thought he was an alien. Like you, you know, a Nubarian. No, he is human. But Siren has unearthed many ancient arts during his quest for immortality which prolonged his life. There are solves other than the plant of life which can fend off old age, but not forever. Without the plant of life, Siren will eventually die. He knows this. Humans have an ancient story called the Epic of Gilgamesh. Hey, we read that in English class last year, Casey suddenly chirped. As I was saying, Enki continued, mildly annoyed, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh was an ancient Sumerian king who desired life eternal. Again, Max nodded. You have heard of Gilgamesh, Siren had said to Jadith. Even Siren himself recognized his own resemblance to Gilgamesh. Max found himself suddenly eager to hear his story. Casey visibly leaned forward as well. In the story, Gilgamesh knows that the gods can give him the plant of life, but he must first convince him that he is worthy of such a gift. Gilgamesh is part human, and part Nuberian, that is, part God, so he thinks he may be able to plead his case. And in truth he has reason to hope, who Sumerian legend held that in the past the gods had granted the plant of life to Ziasudra, the Sumerian hero of the Deluge. You would know him better today by the name later given to him by other peoples, Noah. Gilgamesh has many adventures, but in the end he found a land called Dilmun, which means the land of the sky chambers. There, Gilgamesh meets the gods and asks for the plant of life. But they refuse. Gilgamesh has slave blood in his veins, they say, and thus he is unfit for such a gift. Instead, they grant him an audience with Ziasudra, his ancestor. Ziasudra is saddened by Gilgamesh. He tells Gilgamesh that life should not be spent chasing more life, and he is astonished that Gilgamesh has spent so many of his short mortal years on this one obsession, instead of living his life. 
Ziusudrath tells Gilgamesh that Enlil only granted him the plant of life when he was overcome with emotion after the deluge had receded. Such a boon from Enlil was unlikely to be granted twice, and Enlil was quickly sorry that he had even granted it to Ziusudrath. So what was the point of that story? Casey asked. That Johnny Siren is a modern-day Gilgamesh, Ian answered. And that Siren will probably get the same answer. A big, fat, honking no, Sasha said. Anki continued. Though, it is also true that Siren uncovered much over his long centuries. He's penetrated the secret of books. He's learned much of Nibiru's history, and the true history of our kind here on Earth. But he does not yet guess at the dream time. Already, you know more about that than he does. And in dealing with Jadith, he does not yet begin to see how truly dangerous she can be. However, both Jadith and Saranus are slaves already, to their desires. Why is that? Casey asked quietly. Enki's eyes narrowed and he leaned towards Casey. What I mean to say is this. Jonathan Saranus has lived far, far longer than most humans ever managed to. Yet, he has actually lived life itself very little. His long centuries have been consumed with a singular thought, to live longer and longer. So he has spent his life obtaining more life. The simplest of people who are born, live and die in this world in the shortest span of years will have lived a far, far richer, fuller and happier life than Saranus in all of his centuries. I fear that Saranus has purchased nothing but dust. If he would only let go of his obsession, he might find happiness at last. Perhaps... perhaps he will before the end. Casey hung on his every word spellbound until Sasha asked quietly, So why does Jadith hate it so much when people laugh? She used to have the Serp kids beaten all the time when they so much as giggled. Enki replied, She takes it as an insult because it's a reminder to her that humans are much more than talking animals. Laughter is what really separates man from beast. Humans are the only creature with laughs. When Jadith hears laughter, it reminds her that humans are creatures with souls, with intelligence, like Nuberians, and that makes her furious. She can't stand to hear the plain evidence of her ears. Incidentally, that's why I make sure everyone I allow to come here can laugh. They have to have a sense of humor. It's a better test than you know for separating man from beast. For some talking animals are merely beasts imitating men. At that point, Enki became distracted, peering intently into the night air over the sea. He stood up. What is it? Max asked. Shh! Enki hissed. Max strained his eyes but could see nothing. A crow cawed loudly, and they were barely able to make out a black shape like a shadow passing against the sky. Enki was suddenly holding a mighty bow and arrow, and he had loosed the arrow into the air before Max even comprehended what was happening. The arrow whistled for a second, and then they heard a dull, muffled thunk. The shadow dropped lifelessly out of the sky, wings limp and snapping in the air as it fell. Several long seconds later, they heard a splash far down below them. Was that crow dangerous or something? Max asked. That was not a crow, Enki replied mysteriously. But what was it? Sasha asked. Nothing you need concern yourself with. Enki glowered in a tone that was not to be questioned. Now, Enki continued after a pause, you've had a taste of Jadith for yourselves. Tell me, what did you think of her? Of Jadith? She's evil, Max said without hesitation. Ian and Sasha nodded in agreement. Enki nodded slowly. Yes, but do you know why exactly? That's easy enough. Because she's mean, Max replied. Enki shook his head. No. Enki's eyes smoldered. He was troubled by Max's answer. This is very important, and you must know this if you are to have any chance at all of stopping her. Enki fixed Max with his gaze, his eyes burning. So I will ask you again. What is the difference between good and evil? They all sat down and thought, now completely perplexed. How could they not understand good and evil? Everybody knew the difference, didn't they? Then Ian spoke up. Well, I have an idea about that. 
I think it's kind of like what I do with P2P file sharing on my computer. Enki looked at him quizzically. No, really, Ian continued. Let me explain. Usually, everyone on the network is cool and shares all the songs with everyone else. For example, I might share only 40 songs, but the network gives me access to several million. And here's the amazing part. Everyone in the network gets the same deal. You give only a little bit, and you get a huge amount in return. This is what happens when everyone in the network is good. Everyone benefits enormously. In a network where everyone is good, every person, or node, does massively better than they would do just on their own. But, every once in a while, some jerk joins a network who doesn't share anything. They just take songs. They take and take and take. And this person is what I would call evil. The evil person sucks down songs all day and doesn't share any of them. So initially, they get a huge number of songs for nothing. But sooner or later, the network catches on to the evil person. They see that he's not sharing. So people start banning him from their share lists one at a time. And eventually, over time, everyone bans him. No one shares songs with this guy anymore. He becomes an isolated node in the network, an island. He's alone, powerless, and bitter. So instead of getting millions of songs for nothing, now he gets nothing. This seems to always happen to the evil person sooner or later. So there are two things I would say. One, good eventually wins over evil, just as a practical matter. And two, evil needs good to survive, like a parasite. Enki smiled a broad smile as he nodded. That's right, Ian. I like the analogy quite a bit, actually. So, Jadith is trying to be the evil node in the network, Max said, following the thought. She wants to take and take and take. From six billion people, and then from Nibiru. Enki nodded, seemingly relieved now. Yes. She wants to create a pyramid of power, with herself at the apex, solidifying her hold on all with the pendant. It's an old story, unfortunately. Nuberian fundamentalists love hierarchies and power pyramids, the ages-old structure of evil and slavery. You always find them when one being wants to hold sway over the will and freedom of others. So then why don't you do something? Casey asked Anki pointedly. Here Anki softened and smiled at her. Because I'm not really here, remember? I'm a construct, a hologram. I'm limited. I can't physically step out of the book, out of the dream time, into your reality. No, you four must stop Jadith. But what can we do? Max asked, feeling the full weight of what Enki was asking for the first time. We're just, we're just four little kids. I mean, against Jadith in an army? What can we possibly do? We're helpless against that. At that, Enki's eyes lit on fire. No, you are not helpless, he said angrily. The world is a dream, and you are the dreamer. So as you think, so it is. If you think you are helpless, then you are. However, if you think you are not, then you are not. And I say to you, you are not helpless. Far from it. The children internalized this for a moment, and then Max asked, But why do you do this? I mean, why did the real you set you up to watch over humanity like you do? Enki's eyes hit the ground with what could only be shame. There are a lot of reasons I could give, he sighed quietly. I could say that there is much I would undo if I could. I could say that it is my responsibility, that I owe it to humans. There is much harm that my people have wreaked upon humanity over the eons, as well as much good. And I could say that someone needs to be on guard against Nibiru itself, keeping watch against exactly the kind of threat that Jadith now poses. But finally, there is a simpler reason. Enki's eyes burned suddenly with a glint of fire, and old rage rekindled. They love slavery, and I love freedom. Max was silent and felt profoundly disturbed by this. But I'm Nuberian. It seems like most Nuberians love slavery. Enki nodded vigorously. That's what you are, but you decide who you are. We are who we choose to be, no matter who our parents were. And here, Enki slipped a quick glance at Casey, who seemed startled. 
I'm Newberian, Hanky summed up, passion quaking now in his voice. And I love freedom. Max found himself already mouthing the phrase under his breath like a prayer. We are who we choose to be. Now, Hanky said, interrupting their thoughts, there is one last matter I wish to take care of. Some last things you need to understand, which will help you comprehend what is truly at stake. I wish to tell you a story. I wish to tell you my tale. You're listening to The Pocket and the Pendant by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author, produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Michael and Evo's Dragon Page and Podiobooks.com. The full book is available in Podiobook format at Podiobooks.com. The full print version is available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Lulu.com, or from the book's website and blog at www.pocketandpendant.com 